Open your Bibles, please, to 2 Timothy chapter 3. 2 Timothy chapter 3. We have a wonderful prophecy that the Apostle Paul gave to Timothy, and we are living in the fulfillment of it. It's been fulfilled before in other degrees, but when you read through this whole passage, you know that we are in the eye of the storm. When you read these verses and compare them to the Christianity that is so popular in America today. A lukewarm, compromising, worldly, carnal, effeminate. When I say effeminate, it means it's geared toward women. It attracts women. It ordains women. And it's pleasing to women. That's what I mean by effeminate. Christianity. The Christianity of the Bible is not an effeminate religion. Oh, there were lots of women, but they were real women. They weren't the silly women that we're going to read about in 6 and 7. And as I've had opportunity to study further, and I'll I'll be saying this in just a few minutes, I'm excited about our women in this church. They're great women and they're not silly women. There's a little bit of silliness in every woman because the Bible tells us that. But the silly women that false teachers would take advantage of, most of our women wouldn't be taking advantage of them. I don't know many of our women that are sitting at home seduced by Benny Hinn. You know, the pastor has more problems with that than the women do. I'm not seduced at all. I watch Benny from time to time for a little bit of spiritual entertainment and to be reminded of what perilous times we live in since he can pack out a stadium wherever he goes that tells us the state of Christianity in America. Because who in their right mind would go watch that white-suited fraud? Right. We're in a war, brethren. We're in a war. And the war has been declared... In 2 Timothy chapter 3 verse 1 down to verse 5 of chapter 4. And the rules of engagement are given to us here. We're told how to fight this war. We're told what the fight will be. And while it primarily relates to the minister, I want you to be grounded in this as well because it is what we want to all work together at in keeping our church from. And that is to cave in and to slide down the slippery slope into carnal Christianity. Been there, done that, not going back. I hope we're pressing forward. And it starts in each of your souls. And I have begged God by His Holy Spirit to convict each of you first, and me, then our families, then our church. That is the way it must work. This is not a battle that we do on the internet first. This is a battle that we do in our own souls first. This is a battle we do in our vehicles and our thoughts with our televisions, in our homes, and in all that we do. That's where it starts. Then it can work its way to our church and to our website. We are at war. I've told you that this 22-verse lesson ends at chapter 4 and verse 5. I would like to tell you, though, what it says immediately after that. The Apostle Paul said in the next verse, "...for I am now ready to be offered." This is why what he told Timothy was so important, because Paul was about to die. For, because of this fact, Timothy, I am about to die. For I am now ready to be offered, and the time of my departure is at hand. I have fought a good fight. Therefore you should, Timothy. I have finished my course. Therefore you should, Timothy. I have kept the faith. Therefore, you should, Timothy, 
Because everything that carnal Christianity is going to throw at you and those that succeed you will be to defeat you in fighting, to keep you from finishing your course, and to keep you from keeping the faith. Do you follow that? That's why context is precious. If you will read the Word of God and study it, and it's my job to read it and read it and read it and study it to see the contextual connections and to give them to you. You know these verses. How many of you could have quoted, I have fought a good fight, I have kept the faith, I have finished my course, or I have fought a good fight, I have finished my course, I have kept the faith. You could have said those sound bites. But to know where they land in the Word of God is so precious. It's because he's just used 22 verses telling Timothy about a great conflict that's coming, and he had charged Timothy like a captain would charge a soldier. In verse 1 of chapter 4, But then he says, look what I've done, and I expect you to do the same. Henceforth there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord the righteous judge shall give me at that day, and not to me only, but unto all them also that love his appearing. I love his appearing. Timothy, I've just charged you in light of his appearing, but I love his appearing. That's the context. We're We're in war. The first verse told us, This know also that in the last days perilous times shall come. This is one of the most important passages for Christians in 2005. These 22 verses. Perilous times would come. The peril is not to the world. It's not that poverty is going to come. It's not global warming. It's not overpopulation. You would be amazed at what is going down in many pulpits this morning about social injustice, global warming, overpopulation, famine, starvation, orphans, Katrina, tsunamis, and the rest. That is not the peril. It's not even mentioned here. First of all, because the object of the peril is not the world, the object of the peril, or the one subjects to it, are Christians. This is a peril that affects Christianity. And the peril is the rise of a weak, effeminate, womanly, sissified, carnal, worldly, compromising form of Christianity. And we live in those times. No preaching, or very little of it. Entertainment. Fables. Bring in African sex music and call it worship. Compromise everything. Come looking like you're going to the beach. Come looking, come wearing your cocktail dresses instead of dressing modestly. Entertainment, short services. You read their schedule for a week's activities. Monday night, pizza party. Tuesday night, bowling. Wednesday night, lock-in. Thursday night, basketball. Friday night, softball. Saturday, mountain hiking. Sunday, short little service in the morning, Super Bowl in the evening. The Apostle Paul would have been ferociously upset to have seen the decay in our time. And it's it's the fulfilling of this prophecy right here. This is why we worship here. This is why we have this church. We are not like those churches. And we want to be even more different from them. And that's the challenge to all of us. 22 verses. I hope you'll always remember the context that when you come into 2 Timothy chapter 3, you'll remember... Oh, this is that one long lesson 
that Paul gave Timothy, I don't want to let any of these verses fall out of that context of the one lesson. Nominal Christianity is degenerating in front of our eyes. And we don't want to fall with it. We need to fight this in our homes, our lives, our entertainments, our friends, our associations. Everything you do, the music you turn on, the music you turn on, would a compromising, carnal, worldly Christian listen to that music? Or is that music for Christians that are going to oppose worldly, carnal, compromising Christianity? When you turn on music, is it the music of the perilous times? Are only Christians in the perilous times listening to that stuff? Or are you a saint in a war, and therefore you listen to songs that glorify the Lord Jesus Christ and lift up the truth of the Gospel? Everything you do, you must ask yourself the question, am I part of the perilous times, or am I opposing the perilous times? Everything you do. When you turn the television on, Am I disciplining myself in the use of this box so that I am opposing the perilous times or am I part of them? The clothes you put on. Girls, I am thankful for all the attractive girls and women in this church. But when you put on clothes, am I putting on these clothes because I am part of the perilous times of dressing immodestly? Or putting on these clothes because I'm going to stand against these perilous times and be faithful to the, God, the Word of God that has told me to dress modestly and to have a shame-faced attitude and appearance in public. Everything we do, brethren, am I part of perilous times or am I opposing perilous times? That's what we've got to ask ourselves. We saw last Lord's Day in verses 2 through 5 that there were 19 perils listed by the Holy Spirit describing... A, a brand of Christianity that wouldn't have a whole lot of conviction about much. We started with lovers of their own selves and we ended with having a form of godliness but denying the power thereof. Some people call this playing church. Some people calling this just making a profession. Some say they're those that talk the talk but they don't walk the walk. It's a weak brand of Christianity where you profess that you know God, but in works you deny Him, as I read earlier this morning from Titus 1.16. Nineteen perils. Lovers of their own selves. It's a theory that's popularized by men like Jimmy Dobson. It's a reality that is in every one of our hearts. We love ourselves more than we love anyone else. And the Word of God comes to us and says with the second commandment, Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. The Lord knows if we ever loved our neighbors as much as we love ourselves, we would really love our neighbors. (laughs) Do you know how they interpret that verse? They say you can't learn to love your neighbor until you learn to love yourself. Brethren, there's never been anybody on this earth that needed to learn to love themselves. No one. A person, when he's depressed, is not because he doesn't love himself. It's because he loves himself too much and the way other people treat him doesn't measure up. When someone commits suicide, it's not because they don't love themselves. They love themselves too much and they're going to punish other people because other people are not treating them well enough. It's pride. Criminals don't commit their crimes because they have low self-esteem. They commit their crimes because they have high self-esteem. 
That's why they have no, dis- have no regard for laws or for anyone else because they think so highly of themselves. That's the first one. We went over these 19 last Sunday. And I want you to never forget that list. And that list is not a description of the world. Because the world's always been this way. But Paul said, this, the perilous times shall come. Meaning Christians would allow these things. Christians would preach these things. And you go down through that list, and there are very few pulpits left in America where someone will blast away on every one of those 19 points. Very few. Because you know what? You can't have a megachurch preaching against those 19 perils. Because the average megachurch is filled with all 19 perils. Amen. The most conservative megachurch on television is John Hagee's. You can watch it on Channel 16. I think it's called Cornerstone Church. Is it? Thank you, Chad. You're, Chad and I are buddies on this thing about religious programming. Cornerstone Church. He's got about 12,000 in there, 15,000, something like, something like that. I listen to him every now and then. Recently, he said, for all those, for all those members of you that are living with one another, you ought to get married. And I, I go, wait a minute. Wait a minute. Help me. I didn't hear that. Give me a replay on that. That is, that is r- ridiculous. Too big of a church to know who's living together without getting married? The Word of God says we're to be married. But they don't want to blast against things like this. They'll blast against social injustice and they'll give cute little sermonettes about seven ways to be happy. And so forth. But they will not preach the Word of God like, we're, like it's supposed to be preached. And that's what we're learning. Nineteen perils in the first five verses that we want to fight against. And it starts at home and then it comes to the church. But let's get into verse 6. I'm going to read two verses. Verses 6 and 7. For of this sort are they which creep into houses and lead captive silly women laden with sins, led away with divers' lusts, ever learning and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. This false brand of Christianity is described by 19 perils in verses 1 through 5. Then in verse 6 we read, For of this sort... It is this, these kind of Christian teachers that will creep into houses. Now, when we see the word houses, you don't want to think of just four walls, a few windows, a couple doors, and a roof. Because if you're going to make it literal like that only, then you need to get a minister down on his hands and knees, slipping through the bushes and crawling up and darting through a window, creeping into a house. The house here is a family. The entry into the family and the overthrow of the husband, his authority, and the children is via the woman. That's what's being taught here. For of this sort, Timothy, there is a day coming in which Christians will allow those 19 things and they're going to have teachers and those teachers are going to know the techniques of the devil. They're going to go after the woman first and they're going to get the woman And through her, they're going to get the husband, and they're going to get the kids. And they're going to overthrow God's order for the family and take them down. For of this sort are they which creep into houses and lead captive silly women, laden with sins, 
led away with divers' lusts. And it's these women that are ever learning and never able to come to a knowledge of the truth. It's not the teachers that are ever learning and never able to come to a knowledge of the truth, but the women. Because it's women, the number one character trait of a Christian woman today is ever learning, but never able to come to a knowledge of the truth. She is listening to Jimmy Dobson in the morning. She's reading Bill Gothard's manual at noon. She's wanting to watch Billy Graham that night on television. She's on the internet looking for something else in which she can teach her husband how to worship God. She's ever learning. She goes to conferences. She gets seminar videos, tapes, books. She goes to Bible studies while her husband's working, and she ought to be outworking him. She goes to what they call Bible studies. They're ever learning, but they're never able to come to a knowledge of the truth. This ever learning is not going to the local community college and getting a college degree. This ever learning is going to Bible studies and seminars saying that they want to learn the Bible, but they're rejecting their role and their job God gave them while they're doing it. When I read Proverbs chapter 31, it's the most detailed description of a woman in the Bible, I don't find that woman ever learning. I find that she already knows quite a bit and she goes and does it. And what does she do? She takes care of her husband. She takes care of her children. She takes care of her house. She takes care of herself. She takes care of the estate. She takes care of the poor. But she's not out ever learning. The devil has made this choice. A feminine religion appeals to women. It caters to women. It exalts women. It ordains women. It puts them in positions of power that God didn't give them, but which their lusts crave. Notice these women are called silly women that are laden with sins, led away with divers' lusts. Their lusts are not necessarily sexual lusts. doesn't fit the context. Their lusts are pride, learning, position. We want a ministry. Why can you be a pastor and we can't be a pastor? We want an important role in the church. We want an important role in the family. Why does our husband get to rule over us? That is a wicked woman that has lust from the devil. Because that is not what God taught a woman to be like. God said in Genesis chapter 3 in the very beginning, Your desire shall be to your husband, and he'll rule over you. That's the way the world works. Every husband goes to work and has someone rule over him. What are you complaining about, ladies? Every man in here has someone ruling over him. Every time he signs a tax return, he has someone ruling over him. Right, brethren? It's the way God set up authority in this world, and they chafe against it, and they lust against it, and these are the sins and the lusts of these silly women. Catholics have long catered to women. And you know, when we read through this passage, there's a fulfillment in every, ver- every word of it of Catholicism. But it goes past that into our generation, because Catholics never endured sound doctrine. <laughs> so that verse, those verses don't even hardly apply to them. I mean, they got rid of sound doctrine right up front. You know, they, they want to watch a show in another language. They, they did that for 1,200 years. They would sit there and watch the priest mumbo, mumble in Latin while they sat there only knowing English. And a little bit of that. Because it was called the Dark Ages. Because when Rome gets any authority, you are either in the Dark Ages or you are in a dark country in the Enlightened Ages. Catholics have long catered to women. How'd they do it? Infant sprinkling. If you were afraid of your baby going to hell and you could do something the moment it was born, or if you were an extreme Catholic before it was born, and you could guarantee heaven, oh, you just got yourself a woman. 
especially in the dark ages when every other birth ended in a miscarriage. Or every two out of three ended in a miscarriage. And so many died in infancy. If you could guarantee a woman that all of her children were going to heaven because she had them sprinkled by a priest, you got that woman for life. And then when her parents were dying, and they could bring in that robed, effeminate faggot and have him pour water on that dead parent's forehead and guarantee the salvation of that parent through extreme unction, you got that woman again. And then when you had confirmation of that little child at about 12 years of age or 10 years of age in a nice little ceremony, oh, you got that woman again. And then when you had laws of marriage and divorce in your church where your husband could not leave you for any cause, you got that woman again. When you exalted Mary so that she was the most influential person in heaven, you got that woman again. Think about Roman Catholicism and how it went after women. And those priests crept into houses... And forget the picture of someone creeping past the doormat, under the door, into the house. Now Now, the Lord chose these words for a reason. Who was the first one that creeped in and took the woman? The devil. These creep in, but they don't creep into four walls. They creep into the woman's heart and into her life. Do you know there was a practice in the Catholic Church called auricular confession in which every Catholic woman would go and sit down with a little, with a little grail between her and a priest and he would explore her to open up her heart and tell him all of her deepest, most intimate thoughts for 1,200 years. It's, well, it was done longer than that. But for 1,200 years, that form of religion ruled much of the world. And that is how they crept in and got women. You get a woman like that when she's opened up and, bo- and bared her soul to no one else in the whole world but to that Catholic priest, he has power over her. And he kept that power over her. Catholics long did it. You know, they love nuns. They love the neutered priest. You know, they, they love the bedside manner of a guy who's got a 60% chance of being a sodomite. And a 40% chance of wishing he was. Robes, pageantry, stained glass, statues, the ability to buy a candle and help dead relatives make it a purgatory into heaven. They went after women, brethren. You can know that, but they're going after women today. The first house was ruined by a woman being deceived. You know, she took down Adam. The Bible wants us to know exactly how it happened. Adam was rebellious. But Adam chose a woman over God because Adam was vulnerable to a woman. But the devil knew that and started with the woman. So we read in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul said, I fear to the church at Corinth, I fear lest by any means as the serpent beguiled Eve, so your minds should be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. I'm afraid that the devil is going to do the same thing with the church at Corinth that he did with the woman in the Garden of Eden. That's his method. And so we have the warning right here. This is another passage that says they come after the women and they go after the silly women because great women wouldn't take, wouldn't accept them. Do you think Jail is going to sit down with a cup of coffee and watch Benny Hinn? Do you think Jail is going to sit down with a cup of coffee and listen to Jimmy Dobson tell some sappy story? Listen, Jail's going to be out making sure she's got tent stakes laying around. Amen. 
Jail's going to be out doing curls to make sure her arm's strong enough to wield a hammer and drive that stake through Sisera's head in one blow. Jail's going to find out that the King James Version's the Word of God and look around for a shredder to throw all of her other Bible versions into it. And on weekends, be a competitive axe thrower. That's silly women are the opposite of jail. I love our women. And they don't land in verse 6. They're better than verse 6. And I want, we've got to keep them better than verse 6. And we teach them the Word of God. And women love the Word of God. It will save you and make you great women in the earth. I hope all of you know the story of Sisera in jail so that I didn't bore anyone. But old Sisera came in and oh, he appealed that she would take care of him. And he, she took care of him all right. And then they sang a song about it. But that was a great woman. Their effeminate approach today in the powerless gospel appeals more to women than it does to men. These teachers gear their ministries away from men and toward women. They get their women during the day while the men are at work. You know, those radio broadcasts at 9 o'clock, at 10 o'clock, at 11 o'clock, at 2 o'clock, at 3 o'clock, where are the men when that radio broadcast is coming into a home? Where are the men when that television program is coming into a home? And there the woman is being corrupted by devilish doctrine, by the devil himself, operating through false teachers that claim to be Christians while the husband's gone. And he comes home and the woman becomes a spiritual leader in the home. The woman leads the home. The woman tells the husband what to believe and where they ought to go to church. Lord, help us. One way that we stand against the perilous times is for the men to be men in our homes, the husbands to be husbands, the fathers to be fathers, and we raise our women to be godly women, modest in apparel, shamefaced in appearance, loving the truth, lovers of doctrine, doers of good works, and hard workers at home. And we love you. And we're thankful for you. It's terrible what happens while husbands go to work in a day when we've got those vehicles to get the creeps into houses. The word silly, it means intellectually weak, foolish, vulnerable, and feeble-minded. Now all women are the weaker vessel according to the Word of God, 1 Peter 3, 7. All women are subject to deception, 1 Timothy 2, 14. The woman being deceived is in the transgression. The Bible tells us that. However, Paul's going way beyond that here. Paul's saying these false teachers are going after extremely silly women. I mean, women that are known only to be silly, laden with sins. They're just covered up with sins. There's no strength of character. There's no strength of morality. There's no righteousness. They're just foolish, vulnerable, stupid women. And when you see the camera pan the audience at a Benny Hinn crusade, what do you see? You do not see strong men sitting there. You see a whole bunch of women. You know, I wish I had the percentage. I could tell you what I think it is, but I haven't done this as a result of any scientific study. But it, the predominant majority of people there are women because they're the ones subject to that kind of a liar. They are so silly and weak intellectually, morally, covered up with sins, led away with lust. Their lusts are fueling their lives that they fall for a Benny Hinn. They fall for a Jimmy Dobson giving them the world's wisdom about taking care of their family and with the sappy stories of an effeminate man. Where's Solomon thundering about the blueness of a wound cleanseth away evil? You know, how often do you think Jimmy quotes that verse? 
I can help him find it. Do you think if I wrote him the reference that it would, that it would appear the next week on his program, focus on the family? You say, why do you pick on him so much? I'll tell you why. Because he is the number one example that I know of, of this passage in the world today. Jimmy Dobson. A carnal, worldly trained, worldly thinking, human psychologist who women are looking to as the guru for having a godly family. He does not preach the Word of God. He would be off the air in one week if he preached the Word of God. Once in a while... He works in something from the Word of God. He sounds religious, but he is a humanistic psychologist trained and practiced for about 20 years before he got this idea from a vision of having focus on the family. He has broken down the American home. He has turned the women into the spiritual leaders because they're the ones he directs his attention to. His sappy little stories couldn't get a man. Can you imagine some lumberjack sitting down and tuning in to focus on the family and hearing some little sappy story about playing catch with dad in the yard when he was a little boy? You know, what young men need to hear is what's in the book of Proverbs. And you know what's in the book of Proverbs is chapter 5, 6, 7, and 9 about the strange woman. What's in the book of Proverbs is about boys loving sleep too much, boys loving pleasure too much. What's in the book of Proverbs is to find a woman like Proverbs chapter 31. What's in the book of Proverbs is don't get near a woman that talks too much or you're going to want to live in the wilderness. You know, that's a book for boys. The book of Proverbs. And whenever the boys get out of line, whip them. You say you sound like a Neanderthal caveman. We're going to sound old. And do you know what the Bible calls them? The old paths. Jeremiah 6.16. Stand in the old paths. Yes, I sound old-fashioned, and thank you, Lord, for keeping us old-fashioned, but should we be more old-fashioned in any ways? That's what we want to ask ourselves. Are we getting a little too newfangled in any part of our lives? Let's get old-fashioned again. Because that's what the Bible tells us to do. Eve compromised in just a few minutes to ridiculous reasoning that was directly contrary to God. And so do these silly women that flock to Benny Hinn, and fill those big Kentucky Fried Chicken buckets that they pass through the aisles taking a collection for the man to live in his $10 million house and fly his golf stream. These women will leap on any bandwagon that gives them equality in marriage, saves children from spankings, provides a place in religion for them, makes divorce impossible, gives saving power over dying parents and infants, prohibits outside work for wives so that they can sit at home and take it easy during the day, throw in a couple loads of laundry, have a cup of tea, go shopping, play tennis, and listen to Jimmy Dobson. I'm a spiritual holy woman. Five o'clock, call and say something cute to the husband on the phone so that he'll come home and buy pizza for her because even though she has sat around all day, she still doesn't want to fix supper. And they call themselves Christian women. I am ruling my speech. You know what their favorite words are in the Bible? Keepers at home. Do you know why? So they won't have to work. 
You know what they do when they're at home? They have a Bible study. Now they're not only lazy, they're lazy and spiritual. Where in the Word of God are women supposed to be going around having a Bible study? If a woman wants to learn anything, let her ask her husband at home, not let her ask her neighbor down the street as they sit around in sweatpants and waste a day. So many Christian women abuse the Word of God to to live a life of leisure. I am not saying that about any of you women in here. I am saying it about Christian women, and if you know anything about them, you know that I'm telling you a lot of truth. Ever learning and never able to come to a knowledge of the truth. They don't like Proverbs 31. You lay Proverbs 31 on one of these women... In reality, open it up and explain it to them. Show them what it really describes. The hardest working creature the world has ever seen. I'm thankful there's not a Proverbs 31 for men. I mean, when I get to, when I get to the 31st day of a month, I dread it for you women. I don't even want to explain a verse. I know it's a terrifying chapter. But it's the standard God has set for you. And let's rejoice in it together. It's what God said. And so I, I believe it. And I trust it. But you lay that on them the way it describes it, and they will balk and fight and use any little twisting of Scripture they can to protect themselves because they would much rather be sitting with a cup of coffee, staring out into the garden and listening to Jimmy Dobson, rather than doing what that woman was doing. That woman was up while it was still dark, and she doesn't go to bed until it's dark, and she works so hard in between as the whole chapter describes. But silly women don't want to hear that. Silly women are laden with sins. They're lazy. They're presumptuous, they're proud, they're contentious, they're rebellious, they're stubborn, they don't want the position that God's given them in life. They're led away with divers' lusts. Lust for a position. Lust for for a role. Lust for importance. That's what's in the, the context here of these Christian women that false teachers go after. These silly women, which are obvious in any denominational church, if you've ever visited one, know less than nothing about the Word of God. They're bleached, grinning, social do-gooders without even a beginner's grasp of the Bible. But they could give you a long list of seminars, conferences, retreats, and books they've read. Their hair gets shorter, their mouths faster, their faces haughtier, and their minds stupider. Ever learning and never able to come to a knowledge of the truth. I haven't said one thing beyond what Paul said right here. Paul's indictment of the women of the generation of perilous Christianity is scathing. And the teachers would go after those women. Take a traffic count at your local Christian bookstore. The man's supposed to be the leader in the home. Then I would say that 90% of the people that enter a Christian bookstore should be men. Wouldn't you? If the man's supposed to be the leader of the home, the spiritual leader of the home, what do you think the percentages are? 70-30? 80-20? 90-10? Thank you. What what a conflict with the Word of God. What a conflict with the Word of God. And see, they justify themselves to come home. The husband goes off and slaves at work. And they sit down and set a cup of coffee there. They throw a load of laundry in. Bless their hearts. They should be washing for the couple hotels down the street since they got a washing machine. But they'll set their cup of coffee down and open up their book 
and be sitting there flipping the book, put the feet up on the hassock, there being such a godly, virtuous woman, learning the Word of God that is not in the Bible. She should be throwing that laundry through and cleaning up that house and preparing supper so that she has enough time in the afternoon to get out and find another investment for the family to build the family estate. And this isn't Jonathan Crosby's ideas, it's Proverbs 31. Jonathan Crosby will be a little more merciful than Proverbs 31. Proverbs 31 is the standard by which we are to measure women. And these Christian women are taken advantage of by these false teachers. Men, let's protect our women and let's keep our homes where the husband and the father is the spiritual leader. The children should be taught by the father. Devotions are done by the father. They're not done by the mother. Most of the discipline should be done by the father. Fathers, it says. It doesn't say parents. Do you know the Bible knows the word parents? It says fathers. Bring your children up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. That's one way we fight these two verses of the perilous times. Women are the greatest creation that God made after the man. And I, what I have said this morning is not against any woman in here. I don't believe we have any of these women. But we can't go in that direction. We've got to put up our hands and say, that is wrong. And we've got to oppose it. And we want our young girls to understand the difference. And our little girls that never really got to see your mothers or your grandmothers and how hard they worked, our little girls need to know that a woman works hard. It's not a life of leisure as soon as she can get rid of her husband and send the kids off to school. Okay. My spleen is partially emptied. Not very much, though, because we got verse 8 and 9. Well, I'm not done yet. Verses 6 and 7. What we really want to get our mind around is that verses 6 and 7 are primarily talking about teachers. I put the emphasis on the women, but they're primarily talking about teachers. For of this sort are they which creep into houses and lead captive silly women. We really want to get a hold of those teachers. It's churches gearing their activities, gearing the preaching, gearing the doctrine toward women. And that is what we want to oppose with all of our might. There isn't a role for women in public in the church because the Bible says they're to be silent in the church. They're not to teach. They're not even to have a place to ask questions in public because they are disruptive creatures when they're allowed to ask questions. You women that work with women or you women when you have a ladies' meeting and a question is asked, you know how disruptive even you can be because you all want to give an answer. Or there are some that feel they have to give an answer every time. And so the Word of God has already addressed that and said in public, women do not get to ask questions. 1 Corinthians 14, 34 and 35. If they want to learn anything, don't ask for clarification in public. Ask for it at home from your husbands. That is the Word of God. It's not my opinion, although I believe it. It's the Word of God, and that's what we want to practice. But men will gear the preaching. They'll shorten it up. They'll get rid of the Word of God. They wouldn't dare preach on women, or submission, or reverence, or obedience of wives to husbands, like we do here because the women wouldn't accept it. So they modify it. They tell lots of little cute stories. They flatter the children. 
They give the women as many positions as they can, and all of it is to take advantage of this weak member of every home and wiggle their way into a home to get a family coming. In most churches, the family sits there because the wife is the spiritual leader and the husband feels he needs to follow her or he's going to be deprived in other ways at home or he's going to be criticized by not being a spiritual man. And so he tags along just like he did at lunch for the 11 years that we watched them in Schlotsky's Deli. The men come along like puppies on a leash. They go to church like puppies on a leash and sit there beside their wife, who's the spiritual leader. She teaches the children. She gets them in Sunday school. She takes them to Awana. And she leads the home in religious matters. Not in our church, brethren. Let's stand against that. We can do it. God gave you all the ability to stand against those false teachers and lead your women. Verse 8, Now as Janus and Jambres withstood Moses, so do these also resist the truth. Men of corrupt minds, reprobate concerning the faith. But they shall proceed no further, for their folly shall be manifest unto all men, as theirs also was. These false teachers are like Janice and Jambres. I love the Word of God. Do you know that in the book of Exodus, we are not told the names of Pharaoh's magicians. We're told the names of Pharaoh's magicians in the New Testament. Janice and Jambres withstood Moses. When Moses came in before Pharaoh and said, let my people go. God said, throw your rod down to get his attention. So he threw his rod down and became a serpent. Janice and Jambres threw their rods down and they became snakes as well. One little problem, Moses' snake swallowed up their snakes. And then Moses picked that snake up and it became a rod again and they didn't have rods. Moses had the rod. But there were Janice and Jambres saying, Pharaoh, don't listen to this man. We can do what he's doing. What he's doing ain't nothing. We can do it. So Moses goes over to a river, dips out some of the water, pours in the land, it turns into blood. Don't worry about that, Pharaoh. We can do that too by the power of the devil and by the, by the liberty of God. They went over and pulled up some water and poured it out and it turned to blood as well. Then what happened? We got one more. Moses brought out frogs. Janice and Jambres said, Pharaoh, don't listen to this man. We can do the frogs too. And so they brought forth some frogs. Although it took Moses to get rid of them all. And then it was time for lice. Moses shook some dust in the earth and lice appeared all over the place. And Janice and Jambres were rattled. This is why the two verses are here. Benny Hinn and Jimmy Dobson realized that what they'd been teaching wasn't the truth and wasn't doing anything. And so were a lot of people that were watching that it was ineffective, ineffectual, and false. Janice and Jambres could not bring forth the lice and they turned to Pharaoh and said, this is the finger of God. Does that mean Pharaoh said, Moses, you can do whatever you want? No, because hardened men that are reprobate cannot ever see the truth unless God opens their eyes miraculously. And even though there were another seven plagues to run, Pharaoh still rode his chariot right down to the Red Sea and was drowned along with the rest of his army, totally blinded to the things of the God of heaven and even to natural reasoning. 
You go through the plagues and the boils came up. Moses brought boils upon all the Egyptians, including Janus and Jambres. You've got to read it, brethren. It's exciting reading. There's nothing boring about Bible stories. They're wonderful. They're fantastic. The boils burst out on Janus and Jambres. Go read it in your Bibles. Now, as Janus and Jambres withstood Moses, those two magicians said, Pharaoh, don't listen to this man. And they brought forth a few little works. Now, as Janus and Jambres withstood Moses, so do these also resist the truth. These men, Jimmy Dobson, Billy Graham, Rick Warren, etc., etc., Amy Grant, and on and on, have set themselves against the religion of the Bible. They resist the truth. If you were to confront them with the truth, they would deny it. They would deny you. They would separate from you. They are sensual. Jude, the book of Jude tells us about them. Having not the Holy Ghost. They do not love the truth. They have their system in place and they are going to follow it. And the only reason they're so successful is because they have rejected the truth. Jesus once said, why do you not believe me? And he explained why. Because I tell you the truth. The truth has never been popular. You see their popularity and you can know one thing without knowing a single other thing. They are not preaching the truth. They could not be preaching the truth because the truth has never been popular. And they are very popular. They have audiences with the Pope. Jimmy loves to go visit the Pope. Jimmy loves to go visit the presidents, committing fornication with the kings of the earth and the popes of the earth. Don't be deceived by those men. It doesn't matter how sappy or effeminate they sound. Listen, if you want to hear a really gentle man, go talk to a Catholic priest. He'll be so gentle, you'd want his bedside manner. If you're a real, if you're a silly woman. But if you want somebody that knows the Word of God and can give you the promises of God, you want more than a sissified priest of Rome. Or a Jimmy. They resist the truth. They're men of corrupt minds. He had his mind corrupted at the University of California where he got his degrees in humanistic psychology and where he practiced for 20 years. These men do not submit to the Word of God. The Word of God is very, very plain and very simple about denying self-love, self-esteem, self-confidence, self-acceptance, and all the self-theories. But he preaches them as the number one key to properly training your children and to having a great marriage. He is opposed to the truth. He resists the truth. They're corrupt minds. Their minds do not think right or work right because they have been corrupted with false education. They're reprobate concerning the faith. They do not know the faith of the Lord Jesus Christ nor of the Apostle Paul. They are rejected and worthless when it comes to that. But they shall proceed no further. They will not have ultimate success because the results will show that they are preaching a lie. Just like Janus and Jambres looked okay for a while, pretty soon Moses far outstripped them because Moses had the truth and Janus and Jambres didn't. Jimmy's already being exposed. The studies that have been done in the last ten years have exposed the self-love and self-esteem theories as to be totally false. And look at American homes today. Are American homes today better than they were in 1950? No. Not a chance. 
Not even close. And yet he has sold more books, videos, and is on more radio stations than you can shake a stick at. But there's no fruit. And people are waking up to that. Benny Hinn. You go, on, you go on to the internet and you look up searches for Benny Hinn and you find out how many people out there are exposing him. Yes, he's still got some followers, but people are realizing this man's a fraud. Because God will not allow it to stand and especially for His people. Especially for His people, He will protect sincere seekers to see through Janice and Jambres or Jimmy and Benny in order to see the truth and to be protected from them by true teachers. God will deliver them. Verse 10. When it says in the last part of verse 9, For their folly shall be manifest unto all men. That means the foolish lies of these false teachers will be visibly demonstrated. As theirs also was means as Janice and Jambres got exposed as well. That's what verse 9 is teaching us. But come to verse 10. But, Timothy, I've just given you four verses about false teachers And what would characterize them? They would go after women. And they would get exposed because they would be teaching lies like Janice and Jambres. But, thou hast fully known my doctrine, manner of life, purpose, faith, long-suffering, charity, patience, persecutions, afflictions, which came unto me at Antioch, at Iconium, at Lystra. What persecutions I endured... But out of them all, the Lord delivered me. Paul is telling Timothy, I have just given you a nine-verse description of the character of the perilous times and a description of the teachers of the perilous times. But you have had an example set before you all my life and all your life of following me that showed you the doctrine, the manner of life, the purpose, the charity, the long-suffering, you have seen how I have conducted my ministry, and that is what you are supposed to follow. And the difference between the two is enormous. The doctrine, most of them don't even have a doctrine. You don't even know what they believe, because they've never stated their doctrine clearly. The Apostle Paul was quite clear, and he said, if you preached anything different than what I preached, that you're to be accursed. Doctrine. The teaching of the inspired facts that beats philosophy and science. We don't need sappy stories. We need doctrine. And Paul, the first thing Paul mentions to Timothy, Thou hast fully known my doctrine, my manner of life, the way I have lived, totally sold out. How many millions of dollars was Paul's house worth? How big was his golf stream? How did he travel? By foot. My manner of life. My purpose. What was his purpose? According to 2 Timothy 2.10, I endure all things for the elect's sake. There's his purpose. I endure all things for the elect's sake. And we could go on and on with those verses. You know, Timothy knew these firsthand. Three cities are mentioned by Paul about persecutions and afflictions. Antioch, at Iconium, at Lystra. You can read about these in Acts 13 and 14. Paul went to Antioch of Pisidia, not Antioch of Syria where he came from, but across the Mediterranean Sea in what we would now call Turkey. Antioch of Pisidia. And he had some good success there preaching to the Gentiles. That's where he said, for as many as were ordained to eternal life, believe. That's where Luke wrote that. 
But then the Jews stirred up the devout women in that place, and they drove him out of the coast there. So he went over to Iconium. The Jews got the Gentiles riled up there, the, the unbelieving Jews, and he was expelled out of their coast. And so he came into Lystra, and at Lystra he healed a man, and then they stoned him. And those are the, I just gave you a quick summary of those three cities. But do you know where Timothy was from? Derby and Lystra. So, so Timothy had first-hand information about what happened to Paul on his first evangelistic trip when he went to those cities. And so that's why Paul could say, Thou hast fully known my doctrine, manner of life, purpose. And you have ten descriptive statements here describing a true man of God. And it was the example set up for Timothy, and it was very different from these men creeping into houses and flattering women, seducing them with deceitful tactics, converting, changing and conforming the Word of God to appeal to a female mind. This great difference between Paul and false teachers. You have fully known it, Timothy. You know how to conduct your ministry. These are my dying words, son. But you know them. You've watched. You've seen all these different aspects of a minister's life. Now, verse 11, he had ended by mentioning his persecutions and afflictions which had come to him. He endured them, but the Lord delivered him. And that's the two part. That is the two parts to any deliverance. We endure them. When the Lord sends trials our way, we endure them, but the Lord will deliver us out of them all. But we have a little bit of enduring to do. I like Psalms 27:14, where it says, Be of good courage. That's your part in enduring something. And He'll strengthen your heart. That's the Lord's part. And Paul had practiced that his whole life. He didn't avoid afflictions. He endured afflictions. And in a few verses, he's going to tell Timothy to endure afflictions. And how could Timothy not, having had such a great example? Verse 12, Yea, Timothy, yea, and all that will live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. What a verse right here. 2 Timothy 3.12 I suffered persecution, Paul was saying in verse 11, I suffered afflictions at Antioch, at Iconium, at Lystra. But Timothy, the time is coming in the which all that will live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. And this persecution isn't coming from Nero and pagans. This persecution is coming from those who have a form of godliness, but deny the power thereof. Notice what he says, Yea, and all that will live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. The stricter we are in following the Word of God, the more we will be opposed and persecuted by many times Christians. You know, if you go up to someone in the world and say, I don't celebrate Christmas. <laughs> no big deal. Go up to a Christian and tell them you don't celebrate Christmas. They want to tear you apart. When you tell them why you don't celebrate Christmas, that it's not found in the Bible, that it's condemned in the Bible to have a Catholic holiday and to practice it, or any of the other 120 reasons why we don't celebrate Christmas. When you give them those, it doesn't mean a thing to them. They have made up their tiny little silly minds filled with sins and lusts that they want that day. And you will find that your greatest enemies on the subject of Christmas are Christians. 
Yea, and all that will live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. We could give many more examples. This is not ordinary persecution, but persecution from degenerate Christianity. If you live a holy and a godly life, you will be persecuted by those who only have a form of godliness. You will be persecuted by those who are lovers of pleasures more than lovers of God. If you love God more than pleasure, the lovers of pleasures more than God are going to say to you, Why are you so strict? You're so straight. You're so square. Your life is so boring. And it will be Christians persecuting. God doesn't care if we have a little fun. All sorts of arguments they'll raise against you. Yea, and all that will live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. And the last verse on describing these false teachers, but evil men and seducers shall wax worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. Evil men and seducers shall wax worse and worse. The direction of Christianity is not going to be upward, it's going to be downward. We are not post-millennialists. Post-millennialist mean, means post is after the millennium. Post-millennialists believe that Jesus Christ does not come back the second time until after the millennium. And the millennium is a thousand-year reign of peace, prosperity, and righteousness on earth. Most of these are Presbyterians. They believe that the earth is getting better and better every day of our lives. Christianity is reaching forth its influence, and the world is getting a better and better place to live until we, the church, brings in the millennium. It lasts for a thousand years of righteousness on earth, then Jesus comes. That's a post-millennialist. We are not post-millennialists. The earth is not getting better and better. It's getting worse and worse. And this verse tells us that. But evil men and seducers, and these are not Adolf Hitlers. These are Billy Grahams. But evil men and seducers shall wax worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. Christianity will continue to degenerate. It will not have a revival. It will continue to degenerate as time goes on. The ignorance of Christian teachers and those following them will continue to spiral down. They'll get worse and worse. How? Because they're ever going to be learning, but never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. And the Bible calls them evil men. This is not the Philistines. These 13 verses that we have just gone through is not a description of the Philistines or the Egyptians. This is not a description of Islam. This is a description of fallen, carnal, worldly, compromising, effeminate Christianity. The evil men and seducers here are not out in the world. They're in the church. That is what this whole context is about. And so, when we take this up again, we'll start at verse 14, which has the cure. The cure is verses 14 through 17, and then the charge is verses 1 through 5 of chapter 4. What was the cure? Continue in the things which thou hast learned and hast been assured of, and use the scriptures that are able to make the man of God perfect. You don't need purpose-driven drivel. You don't need Bill Gothard's 
manual on basic youth conflicts, you need the Bible, Timothy. And it's able to make you perfect, truly furnished unto all good works.